So picking it up in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, or some translations say, not so the wicked, very jarring. But they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There are only two ways to live. There is no third way. One way leads to everlasting life. The other way leads to everlasting destruction. Two ways to live. Two roads. Which path are you on this morning? That's, that's the challenge before us. In particular, verses 1 through 3, about living the blessed life. <clears throat> Everyone wants to be happy, yes? I think that's a fair statement. Everyone wants to be happy. That, that most people don't wake up in the morning saying, I want to be miserable today. I want today to be the worst day I could possibly have. I hope today is a rotten day. No one wants that. We all want to be blessed. We all want to be happy. Uh, there are those, of course, who doubt we'll ever find happiness. They want to be happy, but they seriously doubt that we ever will be. And certainly 2020 has given them a lot to think that way with all that's happened. On the face of it, 2020 seems to have proved uh, that happiness is a far-fetched dream. <clears throat> Many are perhaps happy that 2020 is behind us and a new year is upon us, 2021. But what if 2021 makes 2020 look like a piece of cake? Who says 2021 is going to be any better? In 2020. Is it possible if 2021 is worse than 2020 to be happy? Do you want to be happy? Then read this psalm and put it into action. Everyone who is seeking happiness should, should come to this psalm and think upon it because it directs to where happiness is found in its highest, most superlative form. Notice that very first word, blessed, blessed. That's a common word through the book of Psalms. You find it 26 times at least. Uh, here in the plural, remember the Old Testament is written in Hebrew for the most part. There are parts of the Aramaic, but for the most part it's written in Hebrew. And so here in the Hebrew, that word blessed is in the plural form. And I point that out only to say that when typically in the Hebrew, when they put words in plural... It's to really put an exclamation point on something. So you can translate this, oh, the very happy man or woman, or oh, the very blessed one. Actually, you could even, it's hard to say, but you could even translate it, the blessednesses. Because <laughs> again, it's in the plural. It's a very emphatic, strong word emphasizing uh, inner contentment. Peace of mind. And remember that Scripture is God's word to us. So here in no uncertain terms, in Psalm chapter 1, we are being assured it is possible to live the happy life, the blessed life. But it must be lived on God's terms. Only those who are willing to be the kind of person described in this chapter, especially the first three verses of Psalm chapter 1, will know God's happiness. What kind of person is that? What kind of person is it that will know God's happiness? It's the person who builds their life on the Word of God, who makes the Word of God their foundation. 
And this is repeated constantly in the book of Psalms. So in Psalm chapter 94, verse 12, we read this, Lord, how happy is anyone you discipline and teach from your law. Or Psalm 112, verse 1 says, Alleluia, happy is the person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. And then Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2 says, How happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. See the emphasis over and over and over. Happiness is found, blessedness is found. Where? In the scriptures. In a life that's conformed to the scriptures, in a life that builds its, has its foundation upon the scriptures. You see, God has made you and he's made me for happiness in him. He's created you to be happy in him, to delight in him. And every man and woman and child who's ever lived has a great desire to be happy. All human beings abhor misery. Happiness in God, but happiness is the highest pursuit of all people. But so sinful is the human heart that we look for it anywhere but God. But here in God's word, in God's rich grace, he shows us the true way of happiness that can be found. So throw away all those self-help books. Turn off all the talk show hosts, all the daytime seminars and, and, and the workshops, and let's listen to the authoritative word of God on how to live, how to have a happy life in the midst of all the chaos. So how do we do that? Well, point number one, the blessed life or the happy life is found by a negative thought. It's found by avoiding ungodly influence and ungodly companions. The blessed life avoids ungodly counsel and influence. You can see that right there in verse one. Blessed is the man who walks not or who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So the first path to happiness is avoiding ungodly counsel and influence. You do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And wickedness there in verse 1 means someone who is without godly restraint. A wicked person is one who is guided and controlled by their own desires, their own emotions, their own thoughts, their own wants. A wicked person is, is basically what we would call today secular humanism that runs rampant in our world. Thus to walk in the counsel of the wicked, as it says here, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. If one was to walk in the counsel of the wicked, that means you listen to the advice of ungodly persons. And very clear examples of this are when we need counsel ourselves, and we often need counsel. We emphasize counseling here a lot. Everyone needs counseling. I need counseling. You need counseling. Constantly, yes. We always need advice. And so when we need advice or counsel on how to help our children to, to listen and obey or how to be a godly mom and dad or how to be a godly husband and wife or how to control our anger or how to overcome anxiety or what do I do with my depression and, 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 and things like that, where we should not go is to psychology. Psychology is man's answers to man's problems. And psychology, I'll, I'll say this, is very, very, very good at describing the problem. But where it goes very, very wrong is in its prescription or its solution to that problem. It gives ungodly counsel there. Counsel that has nothing to do with the scriptures, nothing to do with Christ and God and his glory. When it comes to morals and ethics, don't look to talk shows like Dr. Phil <laughs> or The View. We look to the scriptures. We run to the scriptures. We look to God's word. Secondly, we see that the blessed person not only doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but they do not stand in the way of sinners. Sinners means to fall short or to miss the mark. And on the face of it, Every single one of us in this room is a sinner. Because we all fall short of what? The glory of God. 
We all fall short of his perfection. And it's not a matter of missing it by like an inch. It's a matter of the goals over there and we're shooting that way. That's how far we miss it. We're not even close. We're all sinners. This is why Jesus died on the cross for our sins. This is why at the conclusion of the service we'll, we'll have that cup with that juice and that bread. It's a reminder to us of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for our sins. That was necessary that we might be redeemed from our sin, forgiven of our sin, that we might have a right relationship with the Lord. And here, a sinner refers to those who have deliberately chosen a way of life that is far short of God's standards. So when it says stand in the way of, it means you imitate them. The blessed person does not imitate sinners. And so notice, as we make our way through this, blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners. We're progressing, we're moving from principle to practice. The first part where it says those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked is talking about if you think the way of the wicked, right? If you think the way of the wicked, what are you going to do? You're going to act the way of the sinner, you can see the progression there. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners. <clears throat> and the third part, where it says, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Scoffers are those who hold nothing sacred. A scoffer is one who is the most hardened of sinners, who mocks God and mocks those who are associated with God. To sit with scoffers is to belong to them, to find comfort with them, to enjoy their fellowship. We here at Orangeville Baptist Church have the discipleship pathway, believe, belong, become, build, belong. That's, this is not the belong we're looking for. We don't want you to belong with wickedness and scoffing. We want you to belong with God's people and a love for his people. But notice here, wrong thinking, because if you walk in the counsel of the wicked, that's wrong thinking, that leads to wrong living, because if you walk in the counsel of the wicked, you begin to stand in the way of sinners, and that leads to what? That leads to making a sport of God. So notice that downgrade. I've tried to point it out a few times already, but notice the downgrade or the retrogression that's found in our text. You can see it in a few different ways. Notice it goes from walking to standing to sitting. So first, you walk. You're still moving, but you're moving in the wrong direction. You're walking in the counsel of the wicked. Then before you know it, you stand. You're lingering in sin. And finally, you sit. You're at ease in the company of those who would mock God. Notice also it goes from wicked to sinners to scoffers. First you're with the wicked, then you're with sinners who openly violate God's command, and then you're with others mocking God, actually encouraging others to sin. And notice counsel, path, seat. How did it all happen? How did you go from here to here? It started with listening to ungodly counsel. It always starts here in the mind. What are you listening to? You begin thinking wrong thoughts, then you begin to stand in the path, you engage in wrong thinking and wrong behavior, and finally you sit in the seat, you belong to the wrong crowd. So worldly wisdom leads to worldly action, which leads to worldly fellowship. Man, it's a slippery slope, isn't it? It's a slippery slope. If you start listening to ungodly advice, you will soon discover you live like the people whose advice you're listening to. Surprise, surprise, right? <clears throat> what starts as a casual contact leads to ever-increasing closeness or permanence of association. Eventually, there's increasing boldness of sin. You, you begin to laugh at jokes you once would never have laughed at. You, you begin to compromise in ways you never would have dreamed of compromising. What a warning this passage is to us this morning as we embark upon a new year. How easily any one of us sitting here, how easily we can incrementally over time, step by step, walk ourselves right out of the blessed life and into God's judgment. 
Not so the wicked. What a verse, verse four is. The wicked are not so. Sin is not a cute little kitten that you can control and play with. Sin is bent on destroying you. If you think you have sin under control, you need to watch out because you become blind to its damage, blind to the power that it has over you. And sin, as I said, is out to destroy you. And as our passage says in verse 4, sin leads to chaff. It leads to destruction. Would you know the blessed way? Would you know the happiness of God? Then you must not listen to the counsel of this world. You must not behave as this world behaves. You must not scoff as this world scoffs. You must, you must reject that counsel. You must avoid that way of living. We need to stop going with the flow, right? Because verse one is all about going against the flow. We don't give in to peer pressure. What the world says about money and sex and possessions and success and beauty, we turn a deaf ear to it. That's what we need to do. That's, that's what Psalm 1 verse 1 is saying. Tune it out. Don't believe it. Don't think on it. Don't act on it as the world would. Listen, we, we don't get our cues from social media. We don't learn how to live our lives from the world and all that's on Netflix and, and all of that. That's not our cue for living. That's not the path to happiness, no matter how much they might pretty it up. That's the path to destruction. We must guard our minds. We must not go with the flow if we are to have the blessed or happy life that God promises us. You must guard your mind, which is to say you must fill it up with the truth of God's word, which leads us to the second way of having the blessed life. The blessed life not only avoids that which is ungodly, but the blessed life pursues that which is godly. It delights in God's word. So you can say it this way. Instead of having a love affair with the world, we're to have a love affair with God's word. We are to delight and meditate upon it day and night. That's what verse 2 says. It's a strong adversative contrast. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And what we're going to do for the remainder of this message is we're going to meditate on that word meditate uh, and, and think on its implications and how to have a blessed life. So we'll begin with the meaning of meditation. The meaning of meditation. And I would just ask you, what, what comes to your mind when you hear that word Meditation. For many, I think what comes to your mind when you hear meditation is you pitch, picture someone laying on the, or sitting on the ground with their legs crossed, thumbs and index fingers forming little O's, right? And they're muttering something over and over. What are they muttering? Om, right? That's often how we think of meditation. If that's what you think, you need to know that is not, emphatically, that is not biblical meditation. That's Eastern mysticism. Eastern mysticism emphasizes turning the mind off. That's why they repeat that om. Biblical meditation is the exact opposite. It's about turning the mind on to the things of God. Eastern mysticism emphasizes that you need to empty your mind. Biblical meditation says, no, 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 you need to fill your mind up with thoughts on God. This is why verses like Philippians 4.8 say, let your minds dwell on whatever is true, honorably, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, worthy of praise. Or Colossians 3.2 says, set your minds on things that are above. Quite literally, the word meditate means to murmur or to mutter. It's talking to yourself. That's what it is. That's what meditating is. It's talking to yourself in a low, uh, low dissonance with your voice. Repeating things back to yourself. And I'll say it this way. If, if you know how to worry, who in here has ever been worried? If you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. Because worrying is repeating to yourself over and over and over and over negative thoughts, which eventually begin to consume you. 
Biblical meditation is the positive side of that. It's repeating to yourself over and over and over truth. Uh, that also has life-altering effects. Biblical meditation, again, is repeating the scriptures to yourself over and over, turning it over in your mind until it saturates your thinking. It's holding the word of God in your mind, in your heart, until it begins to saturate every phase of your life. So this is more than just a sample reading of the scriptures. It's more than a superficial skimming of the scriptures. This is, this is more than cliff notes. This is more than reading the word of God just to kind of make us feel better. This is delighting and digesting and abiding in the word of God so that it becomes part of your being. It's so much so that if someone were to walk up to you with a pin and prick you, you would bleed Bible. That's the idea that's here. You bleed Bible. Because we, we delight to meditate on it so much. Uh, Professor Donald Whitney of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary has written a great book called Spiritual Disciplines. In there he talks about meditation and he has a great illustration. He says this, quote, a simple analogy for meditation would be a cup of tea. In this analogy, your mind is the cup of hot water and the tea bag represents your intake of scripture. Hearing God's word is like one dip of the tea bag into the cup. Some of the tea's flavor is absorbed by the water, but not as much as would occur through a thorough soaking of the bag. Reading, studying, memorizing God's word are additional plunges of the tea bag into the cup. The more frequently the tea enters the water, the more permeating its effect. Meditation, however, is like immersing the bag completely and letting it steep until all the rich tea flavor has been extracted and the hot water is thoroughly tinctured. So he ends it by saying this, meditation on scripture is letting the Bible brew in the brain. That's a good analogy, isn't it? That's how we must approach God's word. We are to turn the truth of God over and over and over in our minds until it saturates our every thought, our every word, our every action. We're to fill our heart and mind with the word of God. As chewing is necessary for the digestion of food, so chewing is necessary for the digestion of spiritual food. When you eat, you don't just put the food in your mouth and swallow. You chew it so that it's digestible and can provide the nutrients your body needs for life. It's the same biblically. When it comes to God's word, you don't just swallow it. You chew on it. Pretend the word of God is like a $100 steak sitting on your plate. If you go to the restaurant, or if you manage to find a $100 steak at, I don't know, Family Fair or Myers, wherever it is you shop, <clears throat> let's say you're at a fancy restaurant, you order a steak, it's a $100 steak, you're going to savor every bite, yes? You're not going to just ram the whole thing in your mouth and choke on it. <laughs> you're going to take bite by bite by bite and delight in it, Right? So with God's word. Devour God's word as you would a love letter. Sentence by sentence, phrase by phrase, word by word, reading and rereading. In fact, I would encourage you this way. It is far better to, to meditate on just a couple verses in the scriptures. Spend an hour meditating on Psalm 1-1. It's far better to do that than, than to read three or four chapters of God's word in 30 minutes or so. But if I was to ask you an hour later what you read, you can't remember what you read. It's far better to spend half an hour or an hour meditating on one or two verses than it is to read a whole bunch of scripture and then not remember what it says, right? That's, that's the value of meditation. It's going slowly, it's lingering, it's ruminating over it so that it gets deep into your heart and your soul. There's also application here for sermon listening. We, we live in a day and age where we have incredible access to audio from very, very, very gifted preachers all around the world. And it's amazing, we, we praise God for that. That, that at the click of a button, uh, you, you can hear sermon after sermon after sermon, rich, God-centered, biblically-based sermons. However, we err greatly if in receiving all of that biblical truth, we don't chew on it and digest it. That's what biblical meditation is. It's chewing before swallowing. It's lingering, not just listening. 
It's ruminating, not just reading. Would you live a blessed life? Do you want a blessed life, a happy life? Meditate on God's word. Meditate on God's word. Think deeply on God's word. Get a good mental sweat going when you open up the word of God. What's the motive for meditation? The motive for meditation is right in our text, is delight. The motive is delight. It says he delights in the law of the Lord. Delight means to be mindful of, to, to give attention to. Not surprisingly, this word delight is used a couple times in the Old Testament for a man delighting in a woman. Surprise, surprise, right? That's, that's what that word delight is. If you, if you can picture or remember when that young man delights in that young woman, how that young man will suddenly rearrange all of his priorities. Suddenly he has all this time to spend with that young woman. And he does it because he wants to. And nothing interferes with his time with the object of his delights. It should be the same with us with Scripture. And everyone delights in something, right? We all delight in something. What are you delighting in this morning? Some of us uh, delight in money. Some of us delight in food or hobby or sports or hunting, whatever it is. What, what do you delight in? What, what gets you excited? Is it God's word? We should have this insatiable hunger and desire for the Word of God. We should be passionate about the Bible. We should get excited thinking about it and talking about it. Uh, the blessed person has fallen in love with the Word of God. The blessed person can't hear it preached enough, and the blessed person can't read it enough, memorize it enough, think about it enough. Does that describe you this morning? Does that describe how you lived life in 2020? If not, maybe that's why you were miserable in 2020. Does this describe you? Are you delighting in God's word? Or is it a duty? Has, has God's word become for you that which is dull and lethargic? Has it grown commonplace to you? And listen, that happens to the best of us, yes? I have seasons in life sometimes where the word of God is dull to me. And what I do is I go to God and I confess that. Lord, change my heart. I've been gorging my heart on the things of this world. There's no room for your word. Cleanse my soul. Cleanse my heart. Renew my heart, O oh Lord. Revive my soul. I need it. And give me that hunger and that thirst for your word. Maybe you need to pray that and cry that out to God this morning. That he would give you that insatiable thirst for the scriptures. The focus of meditation should be pretty obvious. It's the scriptures. Uh, it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Why would we meditate on anything less? The scriptures are essential for salvation. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. The scriptures and the scriptures alone are able to make you wise for salvation. Would you know how to have a relationship with God? Would you know what it means to be forgiven of your sin? Would you know what it means to be righteous in his sight? Pick up and read. Yes? Pick up and read. The scriptures are essential for salvation. The scriptures are also essential for spiritual growth. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. We need God's word like a baby needs milk. We cannot grow spiritually without God's word. Without meditation upon the scriptures, our lives, our spiritual lives will be stunted Elsewhere, the Bible refers to itself as, as being food and water, bread and water. Bread and water are not luxuries, right? You need bread and water to survive. Those are basic necessities of life, and this is the basic necessity of spiritual life. If you are to thrive and live the blessed life, if you were to grow in Christ and be more like him, pick up and read, meditate on this day and night. The scriptures are also essential for spiritual effectiveness. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
So scripture lays a strong biblical foundation for you upon which you can build your life. Scripture convicts your sin of life. Scripture picks you back up when you've stumbled. Scripture trains you and prepares you to be equipped for every good work. Would you be useful in God's hands? Do you want to be a useful, effective instrument in God's hands? Meditate on his word. The scriptures are also essential to overcome sin and temptation. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11 says, How can a young man stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. He says, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. What a beautiful prayer that is. Then he says, I've hidden your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. The more we meditate on Scripture, the more we let its truth saturate our hearts, the stronger we are in the fight against sin. And listen, please listen, when you wake up in the morning, the battle is on. It's on. For those next 17 hours of, or whatever, however long it is that you are awake, Satan is at it. He's not sleeping. He's not tired. He doesn't hit the snooze button. We wake up in a war zone. And how are you going to fight that fight? How are you going to live successful over temptation? How are you going to grow and, and have continued victory? It's by meditating on God's word. That's what the scripture says. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How serious are you in the fight against sin? How much do you read this? That's the answer. That's the answer. The scriptures also increase our faith. Romans 10, 17 says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Hearing God's word increases your faith. Weak faith is like a weak battery, but God's word is the battery charger. Uh, I, I use this illustration quite often when I, when I meet with people. Here's my, my phone. If I don't plug this in every night, by the next morning it's dead. It needs to be charged. It needs to be plugged in. And the Christian life is hard. There's so much out there in this world that is fighting against the truth of God's word. If you're going to be with Psalms 1-1 says where you're going against the flow, it's going to drain every ounce of energy you have. Right? It's exhausting. It's hard. It's difficult to live the Christian life. And just like the, the battery on this phone dies, it loses power if it's not plugged in, you and your Christian life, if you're going to have your faith strengthened, if you're going to be able to walk the walk and talk the talk, you need to plug in and charge with this day by day, day and night, meditating on this. And the scriptures also enhance your prayer life. Jesus said in John 15, 7 and 8, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, so the scriptures. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. That's a promise that when you meditate on God's word, it will so saturate your, your thinking and your prayer life that it will uh, result in prayer that results in fruitfulness. And that's, that's just a really quick summary of what scripture does. So scripture is the focus of our meditation. And you see how much you're hurting yourself and how much you're working against yourself if you're not hungering and thirsting after this day by day. This is the focus of our meditation. What's the frequency of our meditation? You know what it is. It says that we're in the scripture. It's day and night. It's continual. You've heard that saying, familiarity breeds contempt. There's some people, the more you get to know them, the more you wish you didn't get to know them. Right? Be honest. <laughs> God's word isn't like that. The more you taste it, the more of it you want. The more you read and see God as he's revealed himself perfectly in the scriptures, the more you want and the more you want to know and the more you desire him, the more you hunger after him. So we meditate on it day and night. We can't have enough of it. We don't settle for five minutes of it in the morning or five minutes at nighttime. As much as we can, we get into this and we think on this. And you have every opportunity to do that. If you have a smartphone, you have apps on there that you can listen to the Bible, read the Bible all day long. You go for a walk, you exercise, you can turn that app on and listen to it. Better yet, you can memorize God's word and it's always with you and you can rehearse it and that's a great way to meditate. But it should be on your heart and mind continually. 
So what about the manner of meditation? No doubt, as I've kind of moved through that quickly, something that's come into your mind, though, is this sounds like, Pastor Andrew, it's going to take a lot of time. That sounds like something I don't have time to do. I'm already struggling to, to, to get through the day. And yes, meditation does take time. And the answer to some of those questions is, yes, uh, that it may be difficult for you to make it through the day with what you're already doing, but you can't afford not to do this. And they, the fact of the matter is you make time for what you delight in. If you delight in something, you make time for that, yes? If you delight in the scriptures, you will make time for the scriptures. And secondly, I would say this to you, everyone meditates. Everyone meditates all day long. We meditate on politics, uh, we meditate on social media, we meditate on the news, we meditate on books of scripture. Uh, I was, I'll just throw this example out to you. I don't, I don't know how much time you spend on social media, like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, things like that, but that is proof positive you have time to meditating on this. When Christ returns <laughs> on the day of judgment, are we really going to be able to say to him or want to say to him, I just didn't have time, and we see all that time that we spent on Facebook or on social media, that will stand as a judgment against you, right? I'm not, I'm not smashing those things. Those are, those are good avenues to connect and fellowship and even share the gospel with. But what you need to be taking priority in your life is this. This, this should actually be shaping how you function on social media, Right? Our minds are constantly dwelling on something. Maybe your mind is often dwelling on discouraging thoughts or distracting thoughts or, or worrying thoughts. And what you need to do is, by the grace of God and the strength of God, is take control of your mind. <clears throat> take control of your thoughts. Fix them on God's word so that God's word governs your lives. I would say to you, and, if you, and if, you have, if you have the bulletin and the outline that's in there, I, I have it up here somewhere. I'm not sure what I did with it. Uh, but in there, there's some fill-in-the-blank stuff. I just put that in there to make sure you're really listening. Uh, so the fill-in-the-blank stuff is in there. If you want to fill that out here, it's, it's a bunch of peas. I tried to make it simple. I went old school with you, and I, I, I went with, with peas and everything. So the first avenue or manner of meditation is pray. It's always a good place to start, right? Pray. Ask for God's help. As, as you open up the word of God, ask God to open your eyes to see wondrous things in his word. Ask him to show you uh, worthless things that are in your, in your life. Psalm 139, verses 36 and 37. Write that down next to that first blank where you write in the word pray. Then write down Psalm 139, 36 and 37, because there the psalmist prays, turn my heart toward your statutes, which is another word for scripture, and not towards selfish gain, turn my eyes away from worthless things. That's a great way to pray, isn't it? To begin your time of meditation. Because, again, when you sit down to meditate, what often happens is all of a sudden, a whole bunch of different thoughts are slamming your mind. Or turn my mind away from that. Help me fix my mind on the statutes of your word. Secondly, plan. Plan adequate time. Plan a place without distractions. We all know good intentions are worthless without intentionality. Plan a book of the Bible that you're going to meditate on. Plan a verse. Maybe read Psalm 1 and then go back through it and highlight one verse and meditate on that. Plan. Third, peruse. P-E-R-U-S-E. Peruse. Peruse the scriptures. Seek to understand what the passage means in context. That's critical. <laughs> First three rules of biblical interpretation. Context, context, context. What does this text mean in context? Not what does this passage mean to me? No, what does this passage mean to the original intended audience? What is God's original intended meaning? And how do I need to change in light of it? Peruse the scriptures. Get your pen and paper out and write yourself clear. Journal. Uh, on, on the side there, on, in your notes, there's a, a box with a bunch of questions. You can ask a verse to help you meditate, to peruse or ponder the scriptures. You can ask questions like, how can I worship God for who he is? 
and what he has done based on this passage. And maybe try and write out 10 ways you can worship God based on that verse you're meditating on. What do I need to confess that relates to this passage's truth? What can I thank God for related to this text? And same idea, try and write out like five or 10 things you can thank God for based on that verse you're spending time thinking on. What do I need to ask for God's help in obeying or believing? What does this passage say about my sinfulness? How does this passage relate to the person and work of Christ? What attitude or action does God want me to change in my life? That's just a few ways. There's lots of ways. And if you want, let me know. I can email you or message you with 17 different ways you can meditate on God's word, different questions like this. <clears throat> Fourthly, practice. Commit yourself to doing what you just meditated on. Otherwise, you're a fool and you've deceived yourself. Biblical meditation, as I've been saying, is like digestion. We don't simply put food in our mouths. It does no good unless we swallow it. Likewise, we need to keep putting God's word into our lives. We, we need to make it a part of our lives. We need to think about, how do I need to change in light of this? How am I, I going to be different, more like Christ, because of this? And the last one, the fifth blank there is, again, Pray. Pray once again for God's help. You've spent all this time in his word. You've been studying it, meditating on it, thinking hard on it. He's brought these things to your mind. Stop and pray and ask the Lord now to do what he's calling you to do, to change how he's calling you to change. Or maybe you made a list of five reasons to thank him. Then stop and pray those five things. Or five reasons to praise him. But saturate the whole process with prayer. And that leads to the fruit of Meditation. You're meditating on it day and night, you're delighting in it, uh, you're muttering it, repeating it to yourself day by day by day by day. What does all that lead to? It leads to verse 3. Verse 3 says, this blessed person is like a tree planted by not a stream, but streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. That's an amazing verse. When you look at that verse, I see a number of blessings. First, I see stability. It says, this person who avoids ungodly counsel and delights in God's word is like a tree planted. That's stability, right? It's planted. It's a picture of a mighty tree with large branches and deep roots that go deep into the soil. With deep roots, you're able to resist the storms of life. I see a life or a tree that's not just planted, that's not just stable, but it's fruitful, right? It says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons. So you'll be spiritual, spiritually fruitful. What, what are the fruit, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. If you meditate on God's word, that fruit will bear fruit in your life. They'll begin to characterize you and be distinctive marks by which you are known. So biblical meditation makes us able to give up our lives to serve others, because that's what love is. Biblical meditation does this. In a world where men and women are very, very discouraged, you're able to have joy. In, in a world in which <clears throat> it's full of angry people falling out with one another and fighting and arguing and, and, and all that, you refuse to have anything to do with it. You have peacemaking. You bear the fruit of peace. Where people are short-tempered and snarl at one another and angry with one another, you're long-suffering and gentle. In this bad, corrupt world, you're good. In a land where men and women break their marriage vows, you're faithful. In a society where people are encouraged to give in to their feelings, if you want it, then go ahead and do it. No, you fight with self-control. What an amazing thing that is. The third thing about this tree is it endures. Because it says it's a tree planted, so it's stable uh, by the, by the <clears throat> streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, so it's fruitful, and its leaf does not wither. It endures. It endures. I love that. That's so contrary to our world, which makes happiness a feeling that kind of comes and goes based on circumstances. But here's a person who is firmly planted in the truth of God's word, sturdy and steady, not like a tumbleweed being, being blown away by, by the wind, but a supernatural source of strength, and you're able to endure. And the last one says, and all that he does, he prospers. 
That's a remarkable phrase, isn't it? In all that he does, he prospers. He prospers. You can imagine the sort of geological or geographical context the psalmist is in. The climate of the Middle East is hot. There are hot winds. The rain doesn't fall much. There are other trees that are falling down. They're crashing down. But you, you do not wither. You do not die away. In spite of all the heat, there's a green leaf. You prosper. There's happiness. There's satisfaction. It's durable. It's deep. It does not depend on the wind blowing. You're founded upon God's word. In this world, you will face hurt. You will face disappointment. You'll have rejection. You'll have sickness. We'll, we'll hear things and see things we don't want to hear and see. We'll, we'll, have, we'll have financial ruin. And even in the midst of all of that, you can prosper. In the midst of all of that, you can have hope in hopeless times. You can be bearing fruit when there is no rain. Man, I want to be that tree. Don't you? Don't you want to be that tree? Stability, fruitfulness, endurance, prosperity. I want to be that tree. What I don't want is that next verse, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. This blessed life is not for everybody. This, this happy life is not for the wicked. This happy life does not come to those who reject Jesus Christ. This happy life is not for those who reject God's word. Those who refuse to build their lives on God's word are like chaff that will go to the judgment. You know what chaff is, right? It's that leftover dust. It's the plant refuse that comes with the harvest. It's the chopped up parts of plants that we throw away. They're no good. They're useless. The most vivid illustration I can think of is, have you ever been to a baseball game? Or maybe you've been to a, a restaurant uh, that, that hands out peanut shells, peanuts, nuts, on, and everywhere you walk, you're crunching the shells because people just throw them on the floor. Or you're at the baseball game, everywhere you walk, you're stepping on peanut shells. You know what those peanut shells are? Chaff. It's the useless part you don't want. You want the nut that's inside, right? That's chaff. God's word is stark, isn't it? It's saying if you don't live a life that's avoiding ungodly counsel and delighting in God's word, you are chaff. You have no weight. You have no life. Life is useless. Life is futile. Leftover. That's the life of the wicked. Think of the winds of entertainment and music and money and sex and greed and drink and gambling that right now as I speak are carrying countless people away to the judgment. And maybe that's you right now. Maybe you've been caught up in some of that wind and some of that chaff. And God's word right now is speaking to you. The Holy Spirit is pleading with you, repent. Turn away from that chaff. It leads to judgment. It leads to destruction. It's useless. Live the life that God has called you to live. He's created you for happiness in him. Stop trying to find it in all those other things. Turn to God in whom is found life and life eternal and life supernal, full of happiness and joy and peace. Would you have that life? And turn from your sin and believe in our great Savior, and he is a great savior. Today is Communion Sunday. And I want to show you how Psalm 1 points us to communion. I don't know if you've ever thought about Psalms 1 and communion. But Psalms 1 does. It points us to communion. Psalms 1 points us to Jesus in a powerful way. How so? Because Jesus is the ultimate happy person. He is the ultimate blessed man in this text. Think about it this way. In Jesus, we have a man who did not walk in the counsel of the wicked. In Jesus, we have a man who did not stand in the way of sinners. In Jesus, we have a man who did not sit in the seat of scoffers. Instead, the Lord, he delighted in the law of the Lord, knowing that it's all about him. Christ Jesus meditated on the law of the Lord day and night. Christ, then, is the one who alone has merited the blessings of verse 3. He's the ultimate tree. He alone had a right to prosper 
and to know that blessedness, that joy, that peace and happiness, yet to him wickedness was imputed. All right? To him, verse four was charged. He's the perfect man, the blessed man, the happy man, yet to him he became wicked. He took the punishment for our sin. He had no wickedness of his own. He never sinned. No, not once, far, far be it. He can never do so. He, he obeyed the Father in every way, and yet he suffered for wickedness on the cross. He became like chaff that the wind drives away. On the cross, he underwent God's judgment. He underwent the wrath of God, and he died. He died like a wicked man who had perished. But up from the grave he arose a mighty triumph for his foes. The blessed man, the happy man. He passed through the judgment of God and was raised to eternal life. Now he is alive forevermore. And now he offers to all of us who will believe the blessed life, a faith in him. By faith and by faith alone, not something that we earn. He earned it for us at the cross. He took our judgments. At the cross, our sins were put to death. And that's why we're happy. That's why we're blessed. That's why we're joyful. This is why we avoid ungodly influence. This is why we delight in God's word. This is why we can be stable and fruitful and enduring and prospering no matter the situation because we're joined to Jesus, the truly blessed man, and we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Do you know this Jesus this morning? Do you know his joy, his peace, his happiness, his love, his forgiveness? Do you know it this morning? Are you that blessed man or that blessed woman or that blessed child? No matter what 2020 or 2021 <laughs> brings, the happy life is possible. God didn't put this in here to taunt you or to mock you and like hold it just out of, out of reach. But this is God's promise to you that if you avoid ungodly companionship and influence and if you will delight in his word, you will live the blessed life. You will know his happiness. You will know his joy. The happiest people in all the world are those who build their lives on the word of God. Are you a Psalm 1 person? Will you commit, will you resolve 2021 to be the Psalm 1 man or the Psalm 1 woman or the Psalm 1 child enraptured with the word of God, enthralled and delighted with the word of God? That is the happy life. That's the greatest desire for my life. That's my greatest desire for you as a pastor in this church is that we would be a Psalms 1 church. That each one of us here would be avoiding ungodly counsel and delighting in the law of the Lord.